Hey, this is Gordon Runyon from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tucumcari. Man, I just got off work and I'm beat. I've got my cold beverage here, sitting in a room that is <laughs> not very adequately, adequately uh, air-conditioned. But hoping to fix that. Anyway, wanted to talk to you a little bit about a book that made the... New York Times bestseller list and stayed there for a while several months ago and caused a bit of a stir. The book is uh, White Fragility and the author is a woman named Robin D'Angelo. Now I read it when it was at the high point of of whatever it was going to do. It was at the height of its powers as the kids say. And I didn't say much about it then. It's been several months now. And I thought it might be helpful given that much time in between reading it and talking about it. It might be helpful if I just kind of informally discuss the things that have stuck with me. I know it's been controversial and there's been a lot of really angry critiques. And... I'm not going to be very detailed, of course, because it has been months and I'm not going to read it twice, but uh, I just wanted to kind of summarize my thoughts for you. Uh, I have three sections in which to talk about this. I first want to bring up what I think is a critical and really pretty fatal strategic blunder that Miss D'Angelo makes with her argument. Uh, we'll get into that. I think if if she's really writing for the group that she that she ostensibly seems to want to reach, I think she made a couple of strategic blunders that are going to ensure that that group that she was maybe hoping to reach that they're not going to read what she has to say. Of course, maybe she was smart enough to know that no matter what she did, they weren't going to hear it anyway. And so she really wasn't trying to reach them. But anyway, there's a strategic blunder in there that I that I think hampers what could have made the book maybe a lot more effective. Uh, the second thing that I wanted to, to bring up is that I do think she made some helpful points she made some points that have helped me and they've stuck with me in the months since I read it. And, you know, as a, as a pastor, uh, nobody remembers what I preach next Monday, the Monday afterwards, you know, so pretty significant that some of the points that she made have kind of stuck with me and I continue to think they were valid. And the third section of what I wanted to mention is her her solutions and how that section of the book might have been improved. Okay, so first of all, I think Miss D'Angelo, right off the bat, makes a couple of strategic blunders. Specifically, she insists on using a very academic kind of uh, very minority 
definition of words like racism and white supremacy. She insists on using kind of obscure definitions when when you're on the street just talking to people and somebody mentions white supremacists or or racism, nobody means what she means in the book. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's fine as long as she defines how she's using the terms. And she does. When she talks about racism, she's talking about a culture in America that has risen out of a kind of de facto normalization of whiteness. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But racism, in her mind, is kind of the culture that tends to... Uh, tends to lift whiteness to a primary position and everything that's not white is kind of uh, out of luck. So racism is a whole culture that was, uh, in her mind at least, built by white people and, and rules made by white folks and stuff like that to benefit white folks. And so if you're living in that culture, you're exposed to that racism from the get-go. And... And so you can't help but be influenced by it. Now, one of the things that this does is she stresses a couple of times that she doesn't think this is a, that this necessarily represents moral evil on anybody's part. So she can actually say things like white people in America are by definition racist because of their participation in this culture. But... I don't mean anything I don't mean a moral failure by that. I'm not I'm not a, I'm not accusing anybody of being bad people because of it. Well, okay. If that's the definition that you're going to use, then all right, and I think that a careful reader can read what she's saying and figure out what the definition of her terms are. And if we accept her definitions, then I don't really think that there's much in them to be super upset or offended by. In the same way, she uses the the term white supremacy. And she says, uh, this is months later, so I'm not reading what she said, but this is kind of what has stuck with me. I'm sure she might correct me if she heard me say this, but my estimation of what white supremacy is, is when white people fight for that racist system. They fight on behalf of it. They understand that it benefits them. They receive the benefits of this of this system that she has labeled racist. But again, Miss D'Angelo would stress that when she talks about white supremacists, she's still not necessarily talking about anything morally evil or corrupt. Okay, uh... I don't know where she got those definitions. I think they come out of academia somewhere. Liberal ivory tower somewhere came up with these definitions. But see, the strategic blunder is even when you define them like that and you try to be careful to say what you mean by those terms, there's a whole bunch of people. There's a whole bunch of people out there, especially white folks, who are going to be triggered by those terms, racism and white supremacy. And as soon as they 
get the intimation that they're being accused of these things, well, they're going to freak out and they're not going to listen to anything else that you have to say. One popular uh, reformed radio host, for instance, uh, really was upset by this book. He never read it, but he's upset by what he, by critiques that he read from other people. To the to the uh, to the effect that black people can't be racist and white people are all racist by definition, and nothing can be done about that. Well, if you use her definitions, that means something radically different than what he kind of took it to mean in a knee-jerk fashion. And so he's convinced that all white people are being uh, are being accused of racism under his definition of racism, which would be, you know, uh, sinful discrimination based on skin color and, and things like that. And, and frankly, in America, white people have been trained, even people who do have racist opinions and, and are racially discriminatory, even those folks know they're not supposed to be racist, and they certainly all know that they're not supposed to be white supremacists. So when you, when you insist on labeling them that way, they're going to just react really poorly to that and, again, shut down, and you're never going to make any headway with them. And I think that is what has happened with this book. Most of the critiques that I've seen really harp on that. This idea that white people are all racists and white supremacists and it's impossible for a black person to be a racist. Well, it's because she's bought into this academic definition of racism that means not just racially hateful ideas and not just sinfully discriminatory practices, but marrying those attitudes to the power to control things in your direction and to your liking. So it's uh, racist attitudes married to the uh, establishment power to, you know, enforce whatever your thoughts happen to be. Well, nobody out on the street thinks that way. And nobody out on the street thinks that w that's what the defini definition of racism is. They just hate it when you call them racist. And, you know, I guess this shouldn't be too surprising. You all have seen on Facebook where you post something, it's got a provocative title to an article or something, and then you've got people responding, but it's clear that they didn't read the article. They're just responding to what they think the title means. And I think that really summarizes about 90% of what I've seen in terms of critiques of this book. It's white men responding to what they think she must mean by racism and white supremacy, and, and they haven't bothered to hear her definitions. Frankly, I think if you hear her definitions and understand how she's trying to use the terms, uh, there's far less to be upset about in that. But it, it's a strategic blunder, because the only people then who are going to read your book are the people who kind of basically already agree with you. And the white folks who don't read carefully or are easily offended thereby justifying her title of white fragility these uh, fragile white folks who are just offended by the words without listening to what she thinks the words should mean or or how she's using them uh, they're just going to turn you off so that's it i think the book is hampered by 
what I'm calling that strategic blunder. If she had just come up with different terms for what she's calling white supremacy and, and racism, I, I think that might have been helpful. So the second point that I wanted to talk about is that I do think she makes some points that are insightful and helpful, and a few of them have kind of opened my eyes and kind of helped me change the way I think about some of these things in a more uh, realistic direction. Uh, one of these points, she talks about the normalization the normalization of whiteness. Okay, these aren't words that I would use or, or anything like that. But, and again, she would say this is not this is not a moral failure. But her contention is that in America, because white men have made the rules from the beginning, basically, white men have made the rules. Those rules, even if they're not intended to be racially sinful or discriminatory, those rules kind of tend to enforce the idea that white is normal and when when we go to the grocery store and we go to the checkout stand and and the except for ebony or jet magazine all the magazines on the rack have white faces on them uh, if you were to come up with a a list with pictures of the of the cast of the top 100 television shows in in history uh, there's going to be very few black faces on that. There's going to be very little other than white faces in that thing. Now, again, I'm not saying there's anything sinful about that. It's just that in a culture, in a, in a geography in which one race predominates and, and really uh, is, is majority represented, a strong majority, this is going to happen anywhere. You know, in China the Chinese race is going to be considered normal. And if I go there as a white man, I'm going to stick out like a sore thumb because in China, being Chinese is normal and being something other than Chinese is outside of what's normal. Same thing in a place like Nigeria. Again, I'd go and stick out like a sore thumb because I'm not normal. I'd be this white guy walking around, this uh, pudgy, soft-looking white guy. That'd be me. And... Uh, and there wouldn't be anything immoral about that. It would just be people are used to seeing what they're used to seeing. And I would stick out as being a an anomaly. And so the point was that in America, we have, over the course of a couple of centuries, we've, uh, without anybody doing anything sinful again, but we have as a culture kind of normalized whiteness. And one of the proofs of that, uh, my daughter ran into recently, she was... She just graduated college with her bachelor's degree. But when she was in college, she made a couple of friends at the gym. And these two guys were, I think they were football players. They were both black guys, but Christian guys, both just really solid dudes. And they treated her like a little sister. And they protected her and looked out for her. And they helped her figure out her workout routine and all that. So they made friends and... At one point, they all decided to go out together to go go eat and do a little bit of shopping and stuff. So what my daughter noticed, and by the way, my daughter is half Hispanic, but she passes for white very, very easily. Uh, nobody suspects that she's Hispanic. So she's a little white-looking girl sitting with two beefy 
muscular black guys. And she noticed immediately. Now, the black guys didn't notice anything because what they experienced was normal for them. But my daughter sitting with them noticed immediately that she was treated much differently than she was when she went in with her white friends or when she was with her family, that they just got treated differently. And when they went into a clothing store in the mall to look around, she noticed it so severely. The, so, the change in how they were treated was so obvious and uh, just was undeniable that, uh, well, she told me she later broke down crying just thinking about it and the injustice that was just kind of staring her right in the face. These are good guys that she's with and uh, not intending evil against anyone. And they just got treated horribly compared to what she's used to. You, you know, you've heard similar stories. And so all of this, I think, is, a, is an illustration of what I'm talking about when I say that our culture, by default, kind of has normalized whiteness. And if you show up as something other than white, well, uh, you're by definition kind of outside of what's normal. Related to that, there was a point that was made that white people tend to hear racial minorities talk about what it's like to be a racial minority in America and there's a tendency sometimes for white folks after they hear that to kind of say to each other things like I don't even I don't even see how people can be so absorbed with race and how can it be that this person that we just heard it's apparent they're thinking about the fact that they're black like all the time I never think about the fact that I'm white, so it makes no sense to me. Here's this, here's this black person. This, this is apparently all he thinks about or all she thinks about. Well, that's part of, that's, that's a ramification of living in a culture that has normalized the race that you happen to be part of. And what that means is that you and, you and I, if you're a white person listening to this, we don't have to give any extra thought when we go into a particular restaurant we don't have to give any extra thought to how we're going to be treated when we go in there unless we know going in like this is a this is a mexican restaurant and i've heard rumors they don't like white people or you know whatever that is normally on average we walk into stores we walk into restaurants we walk into office buildings with and we don't have to give any thought to the fact that we're white and we don't spend any time during the day having to be having to think through the fact that we are white unless something happens and we wind up in the in what we you know would would call the wrong part of town and and suddenly we're like oh man I'm a white guy stuck in this neighborhood and what's going to okay well a couple of times right after I got saved I went with a couple of black friends to their churches so these were two separate black churches that I went to and I had a good time at both both of them and the black folks that were in these churches. One of them, I was one of two white guys that were in the congregation. And the other one I went to, I was the only white guy. Now the black folks there, they couldn't have been more welcoming or kind. You know, I didn't get any kind of bad vibes from anybody. But within myself, I would have to admit that in those times when I was there, I was aware of the fact that I was the only white guy or I was one of two.
of the only white guys. I was aware of it. And in the back of my mind, there was something I was kind of wondering. I was kind of thinking, there, there may well be a black person in this congregation who is not happy to see me here. You know, there may be black people who don't particularly white people like white people, and here I am. Now, that was never proven by anybody's actions, but I'm saying this is the conversation, these are the sort of thoughts I was having, just admitting to you what was going through my head at the time. Now, imagine if that was your experience, like, every day. Like, every store that you went into, or every place of business that you went into, you were suddenly aware of your race. Well... Listening to black folks that I know and black friends that that I've encountered and run into and whatever, uh, that's kind of what these brothers are dealing with. That same kind of, it wasn't really anxiety in those churches. Like I say, I did feel welcomed and nobody did anything bad to me. But there was there was a little note inside my head where I was suddenly very aware that I was white in the middle of a lot of black folks. And I didn't, and part of me didn't know exactly what that was going to mean. Okay, uh, just imagine if that was the way your whole life was, if that's what you experienced all the time. And I know lots of people do experience those sorts of things. Uh, but I think it's true what D'Angelo pointed out, that white people are in a position, overall, we've never had to spend much time considering the fact that we are white people. And so it makes, us, makes it seem foreign and odd to us that there are people who have spent a lot of time having to consider the fact that they are whatever race they are. Maybe just helpful in understanding the way people are thinking. Another uh, helpful point that was made, I sometimes hear white people, and frankly, I, it, it happens a lot. You'll hear white folks kind of get upset about what, the, what is called identity politics. And white folks will be talking generally when they're among other white folks. And they'll be talking about, I don't know why we have to be Mexican-Americans or black Amer African-Americans or Chinese-Americans and why can't we all just be Americans and get rid of those race qualifiers? Why can't we all just say we're Americans? And it dumbfounds the white folks that anybody would want to put that qualifier on there. Well, one of the points the book makes is that it's it was the government of the United States starting back in colonial times, but continuing up till today. It's been the government with the laws that it makes that creates these racial identities. You know, when the Supreme Court rules that black men are, what, five-eighths of a human or count as five-eighths or something like that, that creates an identity that is treated differently under the law. And when we realize that black women didn't really get the right to vote until 1965, you know, that, that creates an identity. Laws that exclude like Chinese immigration laws or something like laws that exclude people based on their race 
wind up creating those identity groups. And then if you're in that identity group and you want to fight for your rights or fight for reform, the only way that's going to happen is if you kind of band together with other people who are in your group and you uh, take advantage of the numbers to get whatever it is that you're looking for. And so for me, that was a little bit of a revelation, just the understanding that identity politics is created by government edict that winds up separating and identifying different races and treating them in some cases differently based on or through the law. So I thought that was very helpful. In terms of solutions, uh, D'Angelo gives no indication that she's a Christian woman. I don't think that she is. And so her solutions are going to be very hampered and and even maybe a little bit far-fetched. But the one solution that she had that I thought was helpful is uh, maybe it would be maybe it would be really cool if white people could listen to people of other races in America as they give their own testimonies about what it's like to not be white in America. Maybe if we could just listen to those things without freaking out and taking it personally and taking it as an attack or or taking it as an accusation. What if we could just listen like we're listening to image bearers created by God created as our neighbors that we're supposed to love like ourselves. What if we just did that? What if we just started listening? I think that'd be huge. Now, I'm sure D'Angelo is maybe an advocate for some social legal policies that as a theonomist I would have issue with, I, things I don't think the government should be doing and stuff like that. But uh, And of course, as a Christian, my belief is that the gospel is ultimately the solution to these things. But one of the things that the gospel should teach us is that uh, where we recognize that an unjust system has really been in place, uh, we should do what we can. We should lend our power and our voice to speaking against that or whatever that may look like in your situation. So, uh, yeah, in the gospel, we're supposed to all be one and no longer male or female, Jew or Greek, slave nor free, all of that. And and that's ultimately got to be where our healing lies is in that redemptive work of Christ. But if we're redeemed, then we ought to seek to redeem the things that are around us as well. Or at least address these injustices and stuff like that. So what the book has kind of made me think about is that I want to be willing to listen. I want to be able to hear I don't want to be suckered into bad solutions or or uh, political football kicking or something like that. But but I do want to be willing to listen, take my brothers and sisters seriously, not just dismiss what they're saying and not get too offended and not take it personally. And uh, I really think that if you haven't read the book, I'd, I'd recommend it. But don't read it if you're if you've got thin skin and you're just gonna freak out. <laughs> read it if you're willing to read carefully and accept her definitions. When she says this is what I mean when I say this, you have to read it like that, or you're gonna get pissed off and, and freak out. 
Anyway, I hope this has been helpful or interesting to you. This has been Gordon Runyon, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tucumcari, New Mexico, and setting the record straight. God bless y'all. Bye.